Real variety for your workday. listening to the Fat Doctor podcast. If you're looking for something a little bit different to all the noise that's being churned out to the airways nowadays, then you're in the right place. We're going to be talking all about the modern day religion that is healthism and how it relates to weight stigma. So all you need to do is sit back, relax and pay attention. Welcome to episode four. Last week we were talking to Rachel and discussing whether or not we have any control over our health. And I hope that you're beginning to realise that health is very difficult to define in the first place. And even when you do get round to defining it, there's very little evidence that you can control it in any way. We're going to develop this idea today when we challenge law number three of the laws of healthism, which is that we as individuals are responsible for improving our own health. So I guess to begin with, we have to ask the question, if we know that health is something that is difficult to define and that health is something that is difficult to control, how are we as individuals supposed to improve our health? What does that even mean? Now, I'm going to let you into a little secret. My guest today is a friend of mine called Lily. I've always known her as Lily. We know each other through social media. Uh, She's always very supportive and she writes very helpful comments. And I asked Lily whether she'd be willing to come on my podcast and explain some simple facts about public health because Lily is a professor of public health. Turns out that Lily's name is Lily O'Hara and her name is synonymous with several research papers that challenge weight-centric healthcare. In fact, one of her articles is something that I've linked at the top of my Twitter page for a long time. And anytime someone says to me, oh, you don't know what you're talking about, I say, well, go read this article and then come back to me. So she's actually one of the co-authors of this article. And I didn't know this before we recorded. And I only realised after we'd recorded when I was looking through some of the literature and I put two and two together, which is very embarrassing, really, because for me, she's sort of um, a bit of an idol, really. She's someone that I've looked up to for a really long time. I just didn't realised that that was who I was speaking to. So I thought I'd tell you that before um, before we started. How embarrassing. On top of that, after we recorded this podcast, I realised this was not going to fit in one episode. So this is actually going to be two episodes. I'm going to release them on the same day, but there's part one and part two because Lily has so much to say and there's so much we can take home from what she has to say that I felt it needed to be separated. Before we get going, who is Lily O'Hara? Well, she is an Associate Professor of Public Health at Qatar University. Uh, She's a public health and health promotion educator and practitioner with experience in Australia, the United Arab Emirates and Qatar. She has worked on community, workplace and school-based programmes addressing a broad range of health and wellbeing issues. Her research focuses on analysing oppressive public health approaches to body weight and their inequitable impact on people with larger bodies and developing ethical, evidence-based, salutogenic public health initiatives for body liberation using the social justice-based health at every size approach. Lily's research focuses on developing the critical health promotion competencies of the community, workforce and institutions through the development of the Red Lotus Critical Health Promotion Model, 
And this is something that she's going to go on and talk about throughout this episode. And it is quite a complex thing to grasp, especially if you're not involved in public health or you're not involved in healthcare in any way. And these kind of words and terminologies can sometimes be, you know, overwhelming to begin with. But she does really try to break it down. And I'm going to try and help to break it down as well. So that when you listen, you'll realise just how fantastic the Red Lotus Critical Health Promotion Model is as a way of looking at health and health promotion and as a direct challenge to wellness culture. It's like the antithesis. It's like the opposite. It's the direct opposite of what we've been taught to believe. And rather than some dude who works out at a gym or watched some Facebook videos or did um, some basic training in health and fitness or whatever. Lily is an associate professor of public health and has been doing this her whole entire life. She teaches undergraduates, she teaches master's students. So I wanted to give you all a chance to listen to a very intelligent, well thought out, researched model that is in direct contrast with the current wellness approach that most people take. In other words, the weight-centric approach. So as I am getting in the habit of doing now with each of my guests, then my first question was to ask Lily how she defined health. So it's interesting actually because um, I teach this stuff like just all the time. So every semester I'm talking to people about what is health, what is health and well-being, um, how are those concepts different? Why do we need the term well-being? And it's partly because the term health has become so corrupted, to be honest, by concepts about, you know, sort of very biomedical paradigm about absence of disease. So we've had to introduce this new term well-being. So I tend to use the term health and well-being to really, you know, enhance that concept and broaden that concept. So for me, I think about health as um, a complex, multifactorial concept that includes factors like mental health and well-being, obviously physical health and well-being, social health and well-being, spiritual health and well-being, even concepts like cultural health and well-being and environmental health and well-being, financial health and well-being. You know, there are so many different aspects to health and well-being. And so it's not an easy thing to answer. And I always ask my students this question, in general, how would you rate your health? And it sounds like a very simple question. And in fact, it is a very simple question on the surface. It's not really the answer that I'm, that I'm looking for. It's what do people think about when you ask them that question? And so generally then we sort of debrief about what they're thinking about. And you usually, though not always, usually get a fairly similar pattern of answers. So people will talk about physical well-being. They'll talk about, you know, they'll talk about not having a disease. Actually, it's interesting because it depends on the age of the students. So for my undergrads, they're much less likely to think about disease, though to be honest, in the age of COVID, that is more of more present, I've noticed, as part of their definition, but not generally. But for my master's students, they, they will sometimes talk about absence of disease. But generally, they'll talk about the things that, that you know, are fairly standard, you know, that they, they eat right is their language that they use, you know, or eat healthy, those sorts of ideas that they've totally consumed, that they're physically active. Sometimes they'll talk about, you know, that they get enough sleep and that, you know, that they don't have sort of high blood pressure or whatever. But it's generally about them as individuals. Um, 
But, you know, it's very interesting because just occasionally someone will say something about relationships, you know, that they have, have lots of good quality relationships with other people. And that'll really spark the other students to start thinking about that more broadly. And so the conversation can broaden very quickly from that initial fairly narrow paradigm to a much broader, more holistic paradigm, sometimes even a broader sort of ecological paradigm about the influence of different environments at multiple levels. So it's a, it, it's a very personal thing for every individual, but it's also, you know, working in public health, we do have a definition of health. I mean, we have a definition of health from the WHO, a complete state of physical, mental, social well-being, and not merely the absence of infirmity or injury. You know, everyone can rattle it off the top of their head. And, but, and when you break that definition down, it, it does actually hold a lot of nuance and a lot of complexity, apart from the word complete, which I really don't like. But, but otherwise, it does hold a lot of complexity. But a lot of that complexity, unfortunately, has been lost when we call our systems that deal with people who are sick, when we call those systems health systems, it really reorients our concept of health towards disease or illness. And I think that's really unfortunate because that's not what health is. And in fact, medical care is absolutely vital when people are sick, but as a determinant of population level health outcomes, it's a fairly minor component. You know, different studies suggest different amounts, but probably about 15% of our health outcomes are related to access to good quality medical care. So it really is a relatively small determinant, but by calling those systems health systems and the development of terms like preventive, you know, preventive health even, like which is nonsensical if you think about it. We want to prevent health, like really? Is that what we're trying to do? But this term preventive health is used, you know, very widely now in, in governments because they're trying to say we want to focus on Prevention. Now, even this word about prevention, I think, is problematic because it implies that we have control, 100% control. We can look at the measures that we put in place and we look, can look at reductions or avoided ill health because it's always ill health. The word prevention really at an individual level implies that we have 100% total control ourselves, which, of course, we don't. We don't at all. So I really love this idea of what Lily does with her students every time she teaches this course. Asking anybody really, are you in good health? Would you say that you're in good health? I think it's a really good conversation starter, you know, great for a dinner party and um, great for people who want to sort of have a conversation about fat liberation, about, you know, fat politics, about weight stigma is, you know, ask the individual, well, you know, what do you think about your health? Are you in good health? Because that says a lot about what we think about health, right? That tells us what our own personal, individual health beliefs. And as a doctor, as a healthcare professional, I know how important health beliefs are. If I'm talking to a person from a kind of very kind of biomedical health paradigm, but the individual sitting in front of me has a completely different set of beliefs. We're not really going to get very far together, right? Because I'm thinking one thing, they're thinking something completely different. And, and, and what we're saying to each other isn't really going to mesh. 
So understanding where where are you coming from? And I've asked loads of people this question. I ask children, I ask adults, and they always tell me, of course, I'm in good health. You know, I go for a run three times a week and I eat plenty of vegetables and I'm a, I'm a healthy weight. Or they say, oh, you know, I haven't exercised in ages and I eat loads of crap and, and I'm so overweight. So that's how they describe their health to me. And, you know, when I'm asking as a doctor, I'm, I'm really asking, have you got any medical problems? Which is a much more useful and specific question to ask. But it just goes to show that health and medicine are not related. And having this biomedical approach to health and well-being is useless. Because as Lily says, you know, it's not about lack of infirmity. It's not about lack of disease. Emma said it. Rachel said it. Lily said it. We're all saying it. It's nothing to do with disease or no disease. It's much more than that. It's much more complex than that. But most people nowadays, not so worried about disease, especially younger people, people who are in generally good health, not so worried about disease, but they are worried about how many times they exercise, what their diet's like and what their weight is like. Those are the three things that they tend to repeatedly mention whenever you ask this question. So it's a good exercise. It's a good starting point for a conversation. How's your health? Are you in good health? And when people start mentioning mental health, emotional health, you know, emotional well-being, financial issues, things like that, things that are slightly more outside the box, we begin to realise that these people have actually thought a lot deeper about what health means to them or that their mental and emotional health is just so sort of, well, usually in most cases, it's it's so poor that that has overtaken everything in the physical. So you can't even think about exercise and nutrition when you can't get out of bed in the morning because you're so depressed. And often people will talk about their mental and emotional health when they're at that stage. But people who generally don't have significant mental health conditions will often forget mental and emotional well-being. They'll often forget stress. They'll often forget that they're working really long hours. They're not getting enough sleep, that they're feeling tired all the time. Maybe fatigue might get mentioned, but fatigue is always mentioned in a sort of physical way. It's, you know, I'm unwell because I'm not getting enough exercise. Uh, You know, I'm fatigued because this, that and that is happening to my body. No one really considers the fact that the most common cause of fatigue is, is, is poor mental and emotional well-being. So, it's it's a fascinating question to ask and I think it's a fascinating thing to talk about on a regular basis, especially when you're faced with people who are going on and on and on about how being a certain weight, being in a certain body size is bad for your health. You just switch it back to them and go, well, how's your health? And if they say it's great, say, well, why? And then they can go on to tell you those things and then maybe you can say, well, how about, you know, your mental and emotional wealth? How, you know, are you getting enough sleep? You can flip the script, as it were. And I think that's actually a very useful thing to do if you're being challenged by concerned relatives or friends or people who are sat around the cafeteria at lunchtime at work and are chatting about their diets. If you want to know what to say, that's not a bad place to start. So a lot of the language that we use around health around well-being and now even this term wellness which is really uh, you know a, another problematic term well not the term's not problematic the way it's been co-opted is problematic so all the wellness you know woohoo stuff um that's that doesn't have any <laughs> any evidence base now as a as a public health scientist like i use evidence of course but i am also incredibly open to forms of evidence that we don't tend to incorporate. So the lived experience of people, for example, I think is an essential piece of evidence in public health, in in treatment systems, in diagnostic systems, in any aspect of, of health and wellbeing. I think the lived experience should be the, the central piece of evidence that we look for. And yet we don't tend to do that. 
but I'm also completely open to the concept that there's stuff that we might just not know about yet. That, that there might be connections between people that, that create good health and well-being and we're, we're accepting this more and more. And I think one of the good things, if there can be any good thing that's come out of COVID, but one of the good things is this recognition that social connections, this recognition of the absolute vitality, the, the essentialness of social connectedness for people um, as part of their health and well-being, I think that's probably one of the the upsides. But it, it you know, it, it speaks to this broadening of the concept of health. So again, we're coming back to this very clear difference between ill health, pathology, medicine, of which I, as a doctor or a healthcare professional, um, I don't want to say an expert, but it's 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 my job. It's what I've been studying all my life. It's what I've been doing all of my life. That's where doctors play an important role, right? In in ill health, in in disease, in pathology. But people assume that doctors are experts in health, and I keep saying we're not. We are experts in disease, and according to the WHO definition, the absence of disease or infirmity does not equal health. And, you know, interestingly, in where that definition occurs, which is in the WHO constitution from when it was first established in 1948, that it goes on to say that everybody, everybody, regardless of your situation, has a right to health. So what they really mean is everybody has a, has, um, a right to the opportunity for health and the conditions that create health and well-being, but that part sort of often gets forgotten in you know in, term, in favor of just the the little brief definition that, as you say, has to fit into a nice little neat box, and we can tell our students and they can rattle it off, and and you know in no time they 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 know what that definition is. But yeah, the the complexity of what is health for anyone. um, And even, as I say, the term complete in that definition is a problem because does that mean there's a binary? And of course there's not, you know, it's all a spectrum. Some days, you know, we'll have better physical health than others. I've just had COVID, so my physical health was suffering, but mentally I was fine. You know, I did get a little bit stir crazy after 10 days inside, but everybody's, you know, feeling that. Other days, you know, you can be physically great but mentally or socially or whatever you're struggling or if you have a chronic condition does that mean you can never be healthy or if you have a disability does that mean you can never be healthy or you know Deshaun Harrison's work around race and health and the concept of health being automatically excluded from people with black and brown bodies because the notion of health is established on you know white supremacy Lily is the first person to actually state something that is so clearly obvious to me, but I hadn't thought about until that very moment when she said it. Health is not binary. It's not healthy and unhealthy. It's not good health and bad health. It's a spectrum, right? It's everything in the middle. And I think a lot of us have forgotten that. This was a a light bulb moment for me, actually, when we were talking about health and wellness culture, I suddenly thought, well, it's, you know, obviously it's not a binary. And this, I suppose, offers some, well, I'd like to say hope, but 
yeah, maybe, maybe that's the right word, offers some hope to people who are essentially excluded from the weight-centric health paradigm that essentially is used by pretty much every health professional and, you know, public health professional and fitness professional, etc, etc, out there. Because if you're fat, if you're in a fat body, you are essentially excluded from that from that health paradigm. You you cannot be fat and healthy. That's what everyone tells you, right? So if it's a binary, if it's healthy or not healthy, then you automatically fit into the not healthy box. Same goes for if you're black. Same goes for if you're disabled. Same goes for if you're trans. Same goes for all sorts of other kind of marginalised, oppressed identities for two reasons. One is that people believe it's not possible to be black and healthy. It's not possible to be trans and healthy. It's not possible to be disabled and healthy. But beyond that, and far more importantly, is the fact that oppression, discrimination, stigma within the medical community also prevents these groups from ever having good health. And and I say that in a binary way. If you're black, you're never going to get access to decent healthcare because racism is a huge problem within the healthcare profession. So you will never get the same quality of healthcare that a white person gets. So by default, if it's a binary, you're stuck in the bad health category without this is out of your control. It's not your choice. You you you're, you're black. That's that's who you are. Same for if you're disabled. If you have a disability, whether it's something that you were born with, whether it's something that you develop over time, if you're not going to get decent healthcare, if you're not going to be treated equally to other people, your health will be poor. If you're being oppressed, not just in the healthcare system, but everywhere you go, in the workplace, in education, in social services, in politics, in pretty much every area you can imagine. If you're being oppressed in all of those areas, which in of itself will have a physiological response, which in of itself will lead to poor health outcomes. So you see, if it's a binary, anyone who isn't thin white, cisgender, able-bodied, heterosexual. Essentially, they're the only ones that are entitled to health. They're the only ones that will be healthy. And everybody else, by definition, can't be healthy. But if we look at health in a sort of spectrum, and a complex spectrum as that, you could say, well, I exist in a fat body, and I... Uh, I'm disabled, but actually this, this, and this, and this, and this is going quite well for me. So I would actually describe my health as being quite good. And it's really important that people understand that being fat is an identity. It is a marginalised identity. It is not something that we bring on ourselves and somehow that excuses us or that excludes us from this idea. You know, it's, you know, people say, well, it's not the same as, as being black. People can't help being black, but they can help being fat. Well, no, um, I'm not suggesting that being black and being fat are the same experience, not at all. But I am suggesting that anti-fatness is based on anti-blackness that I'm confident about. But I am also suggesting that both of these are marginalised identities. And of course, if you have one, that's bad enough. If you have more than one, it's even worse. That's the whole point of intersectionality. But health is not binary. And that's, for me at least, gives me a little bit of hope. So going beyond that, how do we describe health? Is there a way that we can really understand health promotion, if such a thing exists, in the context of what health truly is. And that's where the Red Lotus model really sort of stands out from the crowd because it goes beyond a very simple biomedical deficit-oriented model. And by biomedical, I mean, you know, focusing mainly on disease and pathology. And by deficit-oriented, I mean, you know, is focusing on what health isn't instead of what health is, you know. And people who are in, you know, people who have diabetes 
I'm not healthy as opposed to health is X, Y, and Z. A colleague of mine and I, some years ago now, um, 2007 actually, we first published it, but we've updated it since. We published a model called the Red Lotus Critical Health Promotion Model. And in this model, what, what we aim to do is have part of it describe health so the, the, it's a red lotus flower. So the pod of the flower represents health status. And the pod has many, many seeds in it. And, and that number will differ from one flower to the next. And so for us, what we said that represents is health has many different concepts and it will differ from one person to the next. And it's not an on or off. It's, it's just part of living. You know, so the red lotus flower is a living organism and it at some points will have, um, you know, greater sustainability than other points and it will depend on its environment, etc. So the part of the flower represents this concept of holistic health and well-being. And then the stamens of the pot, like around the pod, that are part, central part of the flower, we say represent the characteristics of people. So this could be at an individual level or it could be at a family level or it could be at a community level. It could be at a university level. It could be at a school level. It could be at a, at a workplace level, at a, at a whole of village or township or, or city. So it operates at all of those different levels. And this is part of what we refer to as the ecological science approach because ecological science doesn't just mean the health of a coral reef. Ecological science means ecosystems a systems approach so we recognize that in fact even from the individual level up we are all systems we are we are multiple systems so as individuals we have our respiratory system our cardiovascular system endocrine system etc we have multiple organisms we are full of bacteria we currently some of us have viruses um you know we there we, we are a multiple species species you know we are not a single isolated species so we are already a complex ecosystem even as an individual and then of course we operate within broader ecosystems at, at those multiple levels i like to look at a picture of a red lotus when i think about it because we might not all know what a red lotus looks like. So it's good to look at a picture. If you have a moment, press pause, Google it, have a little look at it, have it to hand so that when you listen to the rest of this podcast, you kind of know what you're looking at. You know, we've already talked about the salutogenic model. Emma talked about that in episode two. And if you haven't listened to it yet, then I suggest you go back and have a listen because it's really important. And it's step one towards our understanding of what health is. And then Lily goes on to talk about the ecological model as well, which they've incorporated into Red Lotus. And that's also really important. This idea that we are all part of ecological systems, whether it's just our own body, which is made up of lots of systems, whether it is the communities that we live in, the home, the school, the education, the workplace, whatever different systems within our communities uh, or whether it's just the country or the world as a whole we're all part of a system that we cannot forget and we don't exist outside of that system so of course when we're thinking about health we have to think about the context of every individual where does this individual exist you know it's not in isolation and that's why the ecological model is really important so the stamens represent the characteristics of people. So, of course, part of that is about genetics and, and our biology. And in, in different models, it's different percentages, but around about 5%, 5 to 10% of our health outcomes at a population level 
are due to um, biological factors. And part of that is about our behaviours. Now we see public health systems particularly focusing on behaviours, like as if behaviours are the most important thing. And behaviours are important, you know, obviously if people um, smoke a lot, then they are at a higher risk of smoking related diseases. If people are not physically active, then they are not only at a higher risk of disease, but they don't have the benefits of, of physical activity. Because physical activity is a positive behaviour as well, it's not just about reducing risk of disease. So behaviours are important, but they probably contribute only around about 20% of population health outcomes. So this is when we're looking across whole populations, looking at the data. Medical care I've already talked about contributes around 15%. And the rest is what can be called socioeconomic factors of people and environments. So the stamens include the socioeconomic factors of people. So this is all about the people. And then the first layer of petals is all about the environment. So if we put socioeconomic factors of people, which includes things like their education levels, their income, their employment status, because not just whether you're employed or not, but whether you have secure employment, that makes a difference. Um, but So they used to just be the three things we talk about as, as socioeconomic status. But if we think about social and economic status, because that's what the socio means, um, even things like relationship status. We know that people in, in relationships um, have better health outcomes than people that are not. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to go out as public health intervention and make everybody get married. Like, of course, it doesn't mean that. But we know that at a population level, people in committed relationships have better health outcomes. And there's many reasons for all of this. We also know housing status. So as an individual, do you have safe and secure housing? So not, not even thinking about the quality of the housing, but that as an individual, do you have access to that? Um, your gender, so your, your, the way you are treated based on your gender presentation. So this is a social um, factor. So the, all of these factors are social factors about people. So they're all part of the statement. So this all contributes and they all work together. It's a whole systems approach. And then we need to think about the environments. And this is where the term social determinants has come from. So initially there was recognition of social determinants as the factors in society that contribute to health outcomes at the population level. And most importantly, inequitable differences. So these terms health inequity and health inequality started to come to the fore some time ago now. And this is what social determinants is related to. It's about health inequities. So what we need to be really clear about is our understanding that health inequities are the unfair differences in health outcomes based on avoidable differences in opportunity and environment and access so we know that we see health differences. We know that there are health differences based on biological sex, for example. We know that. Are they unfair? Well, they're only unfair if people are treated differently based on their biological sex. We know, of course, there's extreme differences based on gender presentation. We know that. We know that there are differences based on where you live. And because based on where you live has a whole lot to say about the environmental conditions that you live in. So the physical environment, the, the environment around racism, for example, the economic environment, 
the opportunities for people. So all of these environmental conditions. So this started to become known as the social determinants of health. The things that are not the traditional ideas around physiological risk factors. So things like high blood pressure, high cholesterol, etc. Um, inflammation has sort of joined that list more recently. Um, the things around the traditional risk behaviours. So going beyond those and looking at really the more macro level, so the population level rather than the individual level. But of course, this plays out at the individual level. So the person with multiple oppressed identities, for example, will feel <laughs> these social determinants and, and ex be exposed to these social determinants, including from our own so-called health systems, because we know that our health systems have systemic issues, systemic issues with racism, systemic issues with, with um, body size discrimination, systemic issues around transphobia. We know this. We know that our health systems have, you know, they're a reflection of our society. So where these issues exist in society, they exist in our health systems as well. We, we can't pretend that there would be any other, any other situation. So we have to be open and, and willing to admit that our health systems have these issues. And that immediately affects people, like that has an individual effect, but it also has a societal effect. If you've been listening to my podcast, following me on social media, or if in fact you've been involved in any form of fat liberation or fat politics or fat scholarship, then you will hear the term the social determinants of health. Um, it's pretty hard to avoid this term. And whilst most of us probably understand basically broadly what this terminology means, I think it's essential that we all have a real understanding of what it actually means and how it applies to us as individuals and to us as an entire community of fat people and thin allies. So if you live in a society where there are high levels of economic disparity, for example, so countries like the US, countries like the US are a fantastic case study because very high um, overall indicators of so-called development, very significant uh, investment in health, so-called health services, um, very, very expensive health services, but the public investment, even the government investment in health services is, is very high. And yet the US does very poorly on all of the health indicators that we use to compare across high income countries. Very, very poorly. Life expectancy, maternal mortality, infant mortality, etc. Every indicator that we use. Um, and why is that? So there are many, many multiple complex nuanced reasons, but one of the factors is the enormous wealth disparity within the US. So the wealth disparity tracks very closely with health outcomes, population health outcomes which of course individuals uh, feel, but, it, but when we measure them, we measure them on a population level. So social determinants has become a sort of shorthand, if you like, for all of those environmental conditions, the social environment. But it's not just the social environment, it's the cultural environment, the economic environment, the commercial environment, the role of commercial companies, which have enormous influence over society, enormous influence, and over governments as well, as in fact, and over international agreements between countries. Private co or, or public corporations 
have enormous influence. So commercial determinants are very important, commercial environment. The policy environment, so yes, the laws of a country, the legislation that's enacted within a country, the policies that are enacted, but that filters down as well at an, at an institutional level. So every institution has policies and, and standards and codes of practice, all of these things are part of the policy environment. And then of course we have the, the, the things that people think of when we say the word environment, like the natural environment and the built environment. And we're, and we're seeing massive impact from changes to our natural environment from human activity, like climate change, for example. So all of these complex environmental factors, we could in fact put under this um, catch-all phrase of social determinants, but it's a bit of a misnomer. It's a little bit sort of, it suggests that the environmental influences are sort of a, a little bit more narrow than they actually are. But so if we think about, if we use this term ecological science, where we're thinking about all of the different aspects of the environment, not just the, the social or the things that we think of when we hear the word social, um, then we actually have a broader view. And when we put that together with the socioeconomic status of people, that actually contributes around 60% of population health outcomes. So that's where our focus should be. That's got to be where our focus is. At a population health level, that's got to be where our focus is. And unfortunately, it is not. If you look at our health system budget, health systems around the world, the, they, it varies, but in many countries like the US, in Australia, the UK, 95, 97% of the health system is spent on the ill health system. That's where our budget goes. So in public health, our work is way beyond the ill health system. It's on the factors within a society, within a community, within a country, within a globe that contribute to poorer health outcomes for some people and better health outcomes for others. You know, we've heard a lot about the economic implications of COVID and how many people lost their jobs and how many people have lost income. But some people have got enormously rich during COVID. COVID has been incredibly economically beneficial for those that are already wealthy. So, you know, we're seeing greater inequity in, in, in economic well-being, And of course, that then has implications for every other aspect of well-being as well. That's the thing about social determinants of health. Depending on who you are, they will either benefit you or they will punish you. They either oppress you or they give you privilege. And so we can't look at the social determinants of health as something that impacts everyone in a negative way. That, that's not true. In some cases, it impacts people in a very positive way. And that's what we need to get our head around, folks, that very often the people who are involved in wellness culture are the very people that benefit from the social determinants of health. And so when you look at these people, you need to look at them and you have to ask them to yourselves, okay, but what's happening behind the scenes? You know, how are you able to be in the position that you are in today? What's your house like? What's your income like? What's your skin like? Do you have a disability? What's your gender presentation? Those are all massively important things to consider when we talk about wellness culture. Now, we're going to end this particular episode with just the final bits of the Red Lotus model. And we'll pick back up straight away afterwards in episode five with more from Lily O'Hara. 
Our goal with it was to really provide a model that was comprehensive. So we we talk about it as a holistic, ecological, salutogenic model. So you know, encompassing all of those um, values. So I've I've explained the flower and the first layer of petals. The rest of the layers of petals, there's there's more layers of petals, and that's really the sort of technical side of health promotion. So the next layer of, so this is really about what's health, how do we think about health, what are the determinants of health? So that's what we've talked about. The next layer of petals is, how do we assess health at a community level? So the community assessment. And traditionally that's been called needs assessment, but needs assessment is a very deficit model. What are the needs? What are the problems? And in critical health promotion, because the model's called the Red Lotus critical health promotion model. Critical health promotion model, in fact, is a relatively new term and we've had to start using the word critical because health promotion was critical right from the very beginning when it was first born in the 1980s as a sort of concept that would have been around for a long time but sort of formalised. It was always critical. It was always looking about at, at the social level, at the environmental level and about health inequity. But unfortunately, it's sort of narrowed in focus and in many places in the world health promotion has a very biomedical para biomedical behavioral paradigm very narrow deficit oriented paradigm so we call that sort of selective health promotion we've had to find a term for that to differentiate it from what health promotion really was right at the beginning which is very critical approach so the red lotus critical health promotion model has this the flower which talks about what is health what are the determinants of health at the people level and the environmental level and then what do we do in health promotion as a discipline so the first thing is assessing community assets and needs so yes needs are important but assets are also important so community assessment and then being able to prioritize issues and prioritize people the, the populations that we need to work with based on equity now that's another value I'll come back to the values in a second and then what do we do we need to plan programs with people that are priority populations. It's about collaborative practice, um, working in partnership. So we need to plan and those, those programs need to be based on good solid evidence and good solid theory. And then we need to develop goals and objectives that we know are, are um, relevant and, and achievable and addressing the priority issues that our priority populations have identified. And then we need to implement and there's a whole science around impl implementation. And then of course we need to evaluate. So this is a pretty standard program management cycle. Assess what the issues and, and assets are, plan, implement, evaluate, feedback in. So they're the next four layers of petals that are represented, uh, that represent that sort of technical process. But that technical process is, is inherently connected to the rest of the flower. It's not separate from that. You can't get to the, the assets and needs assessment phase and forget all about holistic health and wellbeing. Because if you're not, if the pot is at the center of that process and the stamens aren't part of that flower, then you, you slip back into this biomedical behavioral paradigm. So all parts of the flower are connected. Those next layers of petals are all part of the flower. They're not separate. So that's another thing that why we chose a plant as the representation because we wanted to really be able to continuously emphasize how connected all of this is so that's the rest of the flower then i'll skip to the bottom of the plant the plant itself grows from a tuber and then sends out roots so the tuber and the roots for us represent what we call the values and principles so the tuber is what we value 
Now we've already talked about valuing holistic health, ecological science, a salutogenic approach, like a health creating approach, not just a pathogenic deficit oriented approach. And then I just mentioned a couple of other more um, practice oriented values around collaborative work, working with priority populations. Um, then there's some others that we need to do as well, like not making assumptions about people, making sure that we do no harm. You know, do no harm is a central value of anybody that works in any social or health related um, profession. And it should be a, a central value for the entire society, do no harm. We also though need to think about how do we maximize the benefits and so maximum beneficence is another value. So these, we had 19 initially, we've cut them down to 12 to make it a little bit more sort of manageable, but these are represented by the, the tuber and the roots because this is the foundation of the plan. The foundation of the plan, the foundation of health promotion are these values and principles. Health promotion is not a value free space. Public health is not a value-free space. Health is not a value-free space. And society is not a value-free space. As much as anybody, particularly in the in the more, might I say, numerical parts of, of public health or, or health, you know, where they, they focus on quantitative data, you know, the numbers, there's often a delusion that they are operating in a value-free space. And that that's completely untrue, clearly. Um, so we are very explicit about these values. And these are not values that we've made up. These are values that uh, um, were there right at the birth of health promotion in, in the mid-1980s. These are values that, that are in all of the declarations from the Ottawa Charter for Health Promotion in 1986 all the way through to Shanghai Declaration in 2016. These, so these are... Uh, well-established values. So we've just put them together into this, into the, the tuba. And then the principles are how do you put those into action? So the values are the thing we value. The principles are how do we put those into action? So what does that look like? If we value holistic health, what does that look like? So if we're doing a community, community assessment, it means that we don't just look gather data around physical health. If we have a value of ecological science, it means that we look at all the complex interrelated determinants of health at multiple levels. So the principles are how we enact those values. So that's the foundation. And then we have two more parts of the plan. There's the stem that connects the values and principles to the flower. And in our model, we talk about that as representing critical reflection. So critical practice, requires critical reflection, that you have a reflective process, that you don't just go out and do stuff without ever then reflecting on how, to what extent, explicitly to what extent are you enacting your values and principles. So the critical reflection is the stem that connects the values and principles with the practice, which is the flower. And then we have another stem. Most red lotus don't just have one stem, most lotus flowers. They have another stem with, with at least one leaf and often multiple. So in the Red Lotus Critical Health Promotion Model, we talk about that as representing sustainability. Every plant needs some form of um, leaves, no matter what they look like. Some part of the plant needs to be able to create energy to sustain the growth of the plant. And so we, we talk about that as sustainability, as sort of a uh, an overarching concept about how do we ensure that our our work with communities and that our our um, 
our gift from communities because when communities share with us as practitioners and as professionals, that is a gift to us and we need to value that. And so how do we ensure that that process is sustainable and beneficial and doesn't do any harm and operates at multiple levels, all of the, the values and principles. So it is all connected in the model, but the underpinning is the values and principles. The thing that connects us to our practice is critical reflection. And then our, our practice, the flower is about how do we think about health? What are the determinants of health about people, about environments? And then what is our practice to address those? I hope you found this useful. Stick around for lots more from Lily. Folks, I don't know if you've heard, but I have recently launched a campaign called Hashtag No Way. You can head on over to the website www.noway.org, find out all about the things I've been getting up to over the last few months. I've created a free resource for individuals who are experiencing weight stigma within the medical profession and for health professionals who are keen to learn about weight inclusive care. There is loads and loads of information available on the website, loads of lived experiences, loads of resources, and also opportunities for you to join the movement, to join the hashtag no way campaign and to help end medical weight stigma. Don't forget, I have a Patreon account for those who are interested in supporting the podcast. Also lots of extra goodies that you get, including face-to-face chats with yours truly. I have my website www.fatdoctor.co.uk and I have my monthly webinars called The Waiting Room in which I do a deep dive into the research for a particular condition and information about weight inclusive care. If you're interested in supporting me financially you can do so through my Patreon or through my website. And don't forget that a new episode for Series 2 will be available every Wednesday wherever you listen to your podcast. Join me next week.